reflections from a range of authors, journalists, civic leaders, historians and generally interesting people, exploring the importance of the written word, the value of a library and their own inspirations and motivations. Based at RSE Connolly, the James Connolly Visitor Centre, Belfast. To Fulcher Rover Fad, Arash Higlor, Le Lorlan E. Connolly, I'm delighted to welcome you to this week's episode on our first transatlantic podcast with our guest, Michael Patrick MacDonald. Growing up in South Boston, or Southie as it is known, in the 70s and 80s was far from an easy experience, but it is what inspired Michael Patrick to pen his best-selling book All Souls, as well as to work in the fields of social justice and community organisation through which he has made great ties with Belfast in more recent years. Today we get to hear about how he began as a community activist and how that work has developed into what he does today. My name is Michael Patrick McDonald. I'm originally from South Boston. South Boston, Massachusetts is very well known as an Irish American town. I'm from a housing project called O'Colony Housing Project, and it's one of three large housing projects in South Boston in what was called the Lower End. What a lot of people didn't know so much about South Boston was that three contiguous census tracts of the lower end in South Boston held the highest concentration of white poverty in America. So it would be concentrated poverty. Usually when we think of white poverty in America, we're thinking of rural poverty in places like Kentucky and so forth, and it's more dispersed. But South Boston held on to a poor and working class community of Irish Americans well into the early 2000s. South Boston was an anomaly in that it was urban, highly concentrated housing projects, 75% single parent female headed households, 85% on welfare. But in addition to that, those levels of vulnerability in the community um, in terms of the poverty. In addition to that, it was a neighborhood that was controlled by organized crime and by James Whitey Bulger, who was the head of what was referred to as the Irish Mafia. People, when we think of the Mafia in America, we tend to think of Italian-American Mafia, but South Boston had an Irish-American Mafia uh, headed by Whitey Bulger, and they often worked in cahoots with the Italian Mafia. Um, one of the biggest differences would be that our mafia, Whitey Bulger, oversaw a huge uh, drug trade. And South Boston, you know, the combination of the vulnerability of the community combined with the patriarchy of gangsters and politicians, uh, really right-wing and bigoted, uh, very racist, taking control of a very vulnerable neighborhood, led to a lot of deaths. So. In the era I grew up in, we grew up with death upon death upon death in our streets from uh, murders, from people getting involved in bank robberies. We also had the highest death rates from overdoses throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and into the 2000s, as well as a huge suicide epidemic, which I think has to do with a lot of the, that other trauma, trauma that we weren't allowed to talk about. So on top of the traumas of poverty and violence and deaths, um, you have this code of silence being maintained by organized crime and by Whitey Bulger. So it was really stifling, suffocating place. At the same time, the community itself at the grassroots level in the neighborhood, in the streets was what I always considered the best place in the world. I wouldn't choose to have grown up anywhere else because you walked out the door and you were just part of this incredibly connected 
family. And so the most important things to me in my life to this day as a, an organizer, teacher, writer, and so forth is connectedness and community. And I got that there and I couldn't have got it anywhere else. I feel, you know, um, probably in Belfast if I grew up there too, but, but um, it's, it was that kind of thing, that, that sense of connectedness and community. So <clears throat> growing up there, you know, you started to then witness the manipulations of gangsters and politicians and law enforcement in our community. They all kind of worked in coots with each other and exploited the vulnerabilities of the community. Growing up there, I saw a lot of death in the neighborhood and then in my own family. So just to put it briefly, growing up, I lost four siblings to the effects of uh, poverty and violence. I'm one of 11, a uh, single mother. My mother's, her parents are from Ireland. She raised us. Uh, her parents are from Kerry and Donegal. She's a country Western musician on the guitar. She plays trad Irish music on the accordion. So it was a really lively upbringing and it was fun in a lot of ways. But then throughout my teen years, I started to lose not only a lot of neighbors, but my own siblings. So we lost, my mother lost a baby one year before Medicaid existed. So in the United States, um, you know, we have issues with access to healthcare, as you know. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until 1965 that the United States initiated a Medicaid program, which would give poor people access to the hospital. And that would be the poorest of the poor. So that would be my family. I had a brother named Patrick Michael. So my name is Michael Patrick. I had a brother named Patrick Michael who was born a year before I was born. He was born a year before Medicaid existed. And he had a croup and was brought to the hospital and was denied access to the hospital because they had fulfilled their quota of what they call charity cases. So this is before Medicaid. Hospitals would take in a certain number of charity cases. And if you you know, were beyond the quota, you'd be sent home. So that too would be a violent death. I would, I would, I would consider that an act of violence. Um, I was lucky to have been born after Medicaid. So I had access to hospitals, which was great. But there's still, you know, throughout this country, there's a whole lot of working to middle-class people who can't afford healthcare. So I grew up in the shadow of that social injustice. And I always kind of trace my social justice work to being in the born in the shadow of Patrick Michael and having his name reversed on Michael Patrick and so forth. So that's always been something in my head, that level of injustice. And then growing up, I lost three siblings violently, one involved in a bank heist. He was a boxer, four times Golden Glove champion boxer that was kind of recruited into the gangster world to do this one armored car heist. And he died in the shootout from that. He was kind of used and abused by his partners in crime who were older and who used him and just stuffed him under um, seats in the getaway car and moved on. I had another brother that died in prison. Kevin was more involved in the streets from the age of 12. Frankie wasn't the one who died in the bank heist. But all in all, it was four siblings that died throughout those years and a sister who's um, alive, but is severely disabled and brain damaged as a result of violence. She was pushed off the roof in the housing projects in a fight over pills. So this was my teen years. <laughs> and, you know, again, it went from being the best place in the world to being a kind of hell on earth. But on top of that, not being able to talk about it. Cut to, I was really fortunate to discover a way through this stuff. And that was through community organizing. Now I didn't learn that in my neighborhood because in my neighborhood, 
if you even used a term like community organizing, you'd be chased out of town as a communist. The gangsters and politicians that ran out of town were very right-wing. Everything was communist. Basically, anything different was communist, and you'd be chased out of town. And it was all part of this kind of maintaining a code of silence and maintaining control. And in fact, even though, so we're Irish-American Catholic community, and it was overwhelming Irish-American Catholics in the neighborhood. But the more I've connected with Belfast over the years, even though we're Irish Catholic Americans, we grew up with Irish Republican murals on our walls and so forth. The neighborhood really has a lot more in common with, say, the Shankill and so forth in terms of the politics of it and, and, and all that. So I grew up in that whole kind of situation, very stifling, suffocating. And when I, I end up being a writer, writing all souls about growing up in South Boston and telling a lot of truths that nobody in the neighborhood had told, nobody in the bigger world had known about. So it was pretty dangerous to write that book. But when I wrote that book, people would always ask me, how did you find your voice, right? And I know that this podcast is called Glore, which means voice. And whenever I would answer that question, they were asking the question always, how did you find your voice like on the page as a writer? But my answer always referred back to 10 years before I ever wrote a single word on a piece of paper um, was when I discovered community organizing. And again, you couldn't do that in my neighborhood. So I had to go to nearby black and Latino neighborhoods across town. So I was a teenager in the aftermath of losing those siblings and seeing a lot of neighbors locked up, incarcerated, murdered, disappeared. And I would be watching the television and seeing um, a news report about violence in nearby black Roxbury, which was a neighborhood with all the same statistics as ours in terms of single parent female headed households, young mortality rates, but except they were black. And our neighborhood, it was more of a secret that we lived with those statistics because it served the gangsters and politicians of my neighborhood well for people to always stick to that paradigm that all those bad things, those are black things, murder, violence, drugs. And in this country too, that's the case with a lot of our um, social issues. They're portrayed as black things and that is to the detriment of everyone. It's to the detriment of poor whites who get no services, but it's also to the detriment of poor black and brown people who are always perceived to be the ones that are going to be robbing a bank or something. Um, when it's actually, no, that's my family, you know? You know, I, I went to black communities and people were saying words like poverty. They were talking about drugs. They were talking about murder. They were talking about police corruption. They were talking about incarceration, violence, and so forth. And I was like, these are the words I need to say. So I discovered the words over there. And really that's when I discovered voice. I always say that I, I was taught community organizing by a lot of moms, a lot of specifically African-American moms whose kids were murdered, who were working against gun violence and trying to limit the pr proliferation of guns in our communities and so forth. Discovering that work over there, I knew I eventually had to bring it back home. So it took a few years and eventually I brought it back to South Boston and started doing organizing work specifically with young people in South Boston who were more willing to tell the truth. And by young people, I mean teenagers. And there was a huge suicide uptick in the 90s. They were losing a lot of their friends. They didn't really understand the context of the history of the community. All that trauma of the 70s, 80s, and 90s was not talked about. You know, as a result of that, I believe that the suicide epidemic exploded in the 90s as a result of that. So I helped a lot of young people organize in South Boston. And then toward the end of the 90s, like 99 is when I uh, wrote All Souls. And so I wasn't a writer. I, I became a writer through community organizing because I knew the story that needed to be told by then. And it was not only the story of the experiences of families like mine, but also the story of how to transform that through finding voice, 
through community organizing, through activism and so forth. So when I wrote All Souls, it exploded in a way that I never expected. It became a national bestseller and people hadn't before even known about communities like this with white housing projects and, and shootings and um, overdoses and gangsters and so forth. But I always try to bring the conversation back to um, the social justice issues so that it's not just the gratuitous gangster stuff and isn't this exciting. And since then, I became a professor at in universities here at Northeastern University and at Harvard. I teach basically the role of storytelling in social justice movements. So the experience of writing All Souls helped me to understand the power of us sharing our stories with each other in building our own communities, but also connecting to communities that are the so-called enemy. So the role of storytelling and building, building movements is probably at the root of every class I teach, just because of my own experience at the intersection of community organizing and memoir writing. So I, I've been at the universities for about 11 years, but then in the past six years, I've gone back to grassroots community work. But again, as a writer, in the early 90s, I was like, you know, in my early 20s, and I was in the trenches, I was working with mothers of murdered children, I was doing gun buyback programs, I was doing gang intervention work. But that was in the trenches in a way that, you know, I just can't be at this age of my life. And that's for the younger folks, <laughs> the younger organizers and activists. So my role is as someone who's had this experience of um, publishing and really being able to examine the role of storytelling and building social movements. And so I do this curriculum now that I do in Boston, and now we're starting to do it in Belfast with uh, participation and practice of rights. And the curriculum is called The Rest of the Story, and it's meant to help people to transform trauma and atrocity into their voice and to kind of give back and contribute to just society building. So it's called The Rest of the Story, Transforming Trauma to Voice, Agency, and Leadership, because that's where some people want to go at this stuff. We do it with survivors of homicide victims in Boston. Those are mostly a powerful coalition of mostly Black women who are at the forefront of the survivor movement and, and social justice movement in Boston, and probably throughout the rest of the country as well. But that really, it's Black women leadership always from 30 years ago when I first found community organizing to now. It's what I've always found. It's who shows up. And then with PPR in Belfast, I'm doing the community-based writing curriculum, storytelling curriculum with the mental health advocates of the 123GP campaign at Participation and Practice of Rights. So these would be people who are working to change how the system works with mental health issues in the North of Ireland. So that's where we are now. And we're hoping to then build, as we're doing here, this transatlantic conversation that has been made possible by the pandemic. These, this is one of the silver linings. And so we're looking to then do transatlantic storytelling movement between Boston and Belfast with our social justice organizers on both sides of the water, particularly people who are coming from lived experiences with uh, trauma and atrocities, but who have found ways to turn that into their voice, into their glory.